want you to imagine that you are suddenly in a courtroom. The, the room is packed shoulder to shoulder, all the way to walls that seem like they're, they're miles away. The tension in this room is thick. The silence is deafening. The tone is somber. At the center of the room, there is a throne on which the Almighty King of Heaven sits, ready to issue judgment. And in, this, in these proceedings, there's, there's no jury, there's no defense, there's no prosecution, it's just you, everybody else, and the judge and his countless uh, angelic attendants who are there with him. The judge opens his mouth and the charge against you and against all of us is read aloud in the courtroom. And the charge is this. You have committed treason against the king and against his kingdom. And after the charge is read, the judge calls for his attendants to bring in the books. And immediately they are, they are ushered in and, and these These books that are too many to number, with their pages that have no margins and are filled all the way to the end with writing, are are there before us. We quickly learn that these these books are some sort of, of journal of people's lives, including your own. And that everything is in those books. Every thought that has ever crossed your mind, every word that you have ever uttered, every motive that you've ever possessed, every action that you've ever carried out, every sin that you tried to do but couldn't do, it's all there in bold print before you and the Lord. And one by one, every person is called before the bench of the Almighty and the evidence is read against them. Lies, lusts, Deceits, envies, gossip, hours wasted, sins hidden until that moment, love withheld from other people, judgments cast on others, mercies from heaven ignored, evidence after evidence after evidence is read. And in the end, every person is condemned. Now that scene, though dramatized a little bit, is is a description of what the Bible says will happen on the last day when people stand before God in judgment. I would encourage you later today to read Daniel chapter 7, Matthew 25, and Revelation 20. That's Daniel 7, Matthew 25, and Revelation 20, which are are the the scenes that all of the, the things that we just talked about come from. And as, as we hear that scene and later read, read those texts, there's a question that, that should begin to come really quickly into our, our minds, and it's, it's this. Is there any hope on that day? Can, can anybody escape the judgment? Can anything deliver treason-guilty rebels from an eternal destiny of justified wrath from a holy God? 
Is there, is there any way for condemned rebels to be declared righteous? Is there any way out? Well, that's what we're going to be considering in our time together. In the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. So I'm going to ask that you would turn with me there. It'll help you to follow along. We're going to go verse by verse through this whole chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've, uh, we've got some Bibles here that we encourage you to take with you as a gift. And now you can, you can use, uh, we'll be on page 940 and 941 this morning. I encourage you to, to follow along. As we go and we consider this, this scene, so I want you to, as best as you can, keep that idea of, of that day of judgment kind of in the, the background. That's the context in which everything that we're going to talk about this morning is, is resting. And as we do that, there's going to be two major ideas that we're going, to, we're going to think about together. The first one is that, that God declares us rebels and condemns us in our sin. God declares us rebels and condemns us in our sin. It's the first point that we're going to talk about. That's going to go from verse 1 all the way through verse 20. God declares us rebels and condemns us in our sin. And this, this recounting of our, our condemnation began actually all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And it stretches all the way up to 3.20, which is where we'll get to today. And it's, this, it's a sweeping indictment of, against the world as, as treason-guilty rebels against the King of glory. In 118, we're told that, that God is revealing His wrath right now. It's, an, it's a current thing against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Everyone is guilty before God the Judge. In chapter 1, we saw that the, the focus of this condemnation was on, on the Gentiles. Those are the people who, who didn't have special revelation from God, like the, the Bible or the prophets or uh, knowledge about Christ. But they, they rejected what they did know about God in creation and conscience and replaced Him with idols. And then in chapter 2, we saw that the condemnation was on, on the Jews. Those who did have the truth and who had heard from the prophets and the law and all of these things and did religious activities, but they didn't obey what they knew and were guilty before the Lord of, of hypocrisy. So Jews and Gentiles alike are condemned, all people, before God. And that's where we left it off last week at the end of chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul gets a little bit of pushback from from the Jews who hear this. And they're saying, whoa, whoa, I've got a question for you, for you Paul. Will, will, will God really judge the Jewish people in the same way that He's going to judge the Gentile people? I mean, I mean, don't all Jews go to heaven? Won't we get some sort of exemption? Aren't we, aren't we God's people? And Paul responds in chapter 3, verse 1, by posing a question that a Jew would want answered. Well, then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Meaning, I, I thought we were God's people. Don't we have an advantage? Don't we get some kind of exemption on, on the day of, of judgment? Well, there certainly is an advantage, verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Meaning, you have the law and the prophets. But then he asks, verse 3. 
Well, what if some, meaning some Jews, were unfaithful, meaning unbelieving? Does their faithlessness nullify the faith, uh, nullify the faithfulness of God? Meaning, if, if God made promises to the Jews, saying that they were his people, and now he judges them for being unfaithful, does that all of a sudden mean that God's indicted? That he's now unfaithful? Is God now a liar if he judges Jews who reject Jesus? He answers verse 4. By no means. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. As it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is no liar. He is faithful and his judgment is just, whether it falls on the Gentiles or on the Jews. We are all rebels before him and will be judged for our sin. And then in 5 through 8, he plays out this argument that some might try to make uh, in an effort to excuse themselves from judgment. Verse 5, he says, well, but if, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Meaning, if, if, if God, or if our sin, how bad we are, shows how righteous God is and how good he is, is it wrong for God to really judge us? I mean, hey, our sin, it's kind of making God look good. Right? Then he says, verse 6, by no means, for then how could he judge the world? He says, no, that's dumb. Right? No. If, if God can't judge the Jew for their sin, then how is he going to judge anybody? The Lord shows no partiality in his judgment. We saw that last week in chapter 2, verse 11. And then he takes the argument into like an absurd conclusion. Verse 7, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And, heck, why, why, not, why not just do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, so the idea is, well, let's just do more evil that God might look even really good. And this was the charge against the gospel of grace, that you're going to be saved by nothing that you can do, so now you are free in Christ. So, wow, we can just live it up. We can do whatever we want to do because now we're free. And the more sin that we do, the more that God looks good for forgiving us for all of our sins. He says, that's no. Not no, not even, not even a little bit. He says, somebody who speaks like that shows that they are spiritually blind. Verse, verse 8, their condemnation is, is just. Verse 9, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. On judgment day, you can have all the answers. But if his mercy and his messages don't lead us to love and obedience and faith, we are no better off. So, so we who, um, I don't, I don't, most of us in here are not of Jewish descent, we still live in a culture that's very aware of a lot of the things that the Bible teaches. So just because we have that, or born in America, or born into a Baptist church, or whatever it may be, like that, that does not excuse us. We may have a, an advantage, but we are not, um, we may be, yeah, we may have an advantage, but we are not better off just because we have those things. Actually, it's, there's a stricter judgment because we know more. And to make sure that we understand the depths of our condemnation and depravity before God, Paul, he's going to now move in verses 10 through 20, and he's going to take us on a little tour through the human heart. 
and it is not going to be a pretty tour. And what you're going to notice maybe in, in the way that the Bible's laid out there, you can notice that everything in, in, in 10 down through 18 are all, they're quotations. Some of your Bibles may even have a little uh, places next to you to tell you where, they, uh, where, where he's quoting from. These are nine different quotations from the Psalms and the prophets. And what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's putting on this slideshow from the scriptures showing that everybody is condemned before God. This is kind of the, the pinnacle that chapters 1 and 2 and now 3 have led up to. It's this final, all evidence is on the table of, of our rebellion against God. Starting in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is a snake, is under their lips. Verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Verse 17, And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So on that last day, when the books are open, this is what is shown for humanity. That there's nobody who's standing before the holy God who, who, who gets off. Because there's, there's evidence after evidence after evidence against us. We are guilty. There's, there's three little takeaways from, from what we just read that I want us to, to reflect on for a moment. The first is this. That we are all rebels against God. We are all rebels against God. The rebel roll call right here is really long. And nobody misses it. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Everybody, everybody is under the condemnation of God. We are guilty. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have the law or don't have the law, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you are rich or poor, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, Indian, Australian, men, women, young, old, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, Baptist, Catholic, atheist, agnostic. Everybody is in that list. Nobody escapes it. When you think about it, it is that is a sad picture of humanity, and it's and it's isn't it amazing? Like that's when you watch TV and you know you and you, you, you know, Dr. Phil and you whatever it is, Oprah, all these people what we're watching. The message is, hey, you're good enough, you're smart enough, doggone it, people like you, you're fine, you're good, you're good. Just think better of yourself, think happy thoughts. Don't listen to criticism. No, good in, bad out, good in, bad out. And it's it's this it's this attempt to deny reality. The reality is that God says things are not good. Things are bad. Things are real bad. And everybody is condemned apart from Christ. Everybody. And, it's, and what makes it so sad is that if you remember in the beginning when God created man, after He had made man, He said, it is very good. Very good. 
He made us to know Him and to love Him and to worship Him and to enjoy Him and to have a peace that would never pass away and to have His presence and to know life and joy and freedom in Him. It was very good. In our rebellions, we have traded Him in. We've exchanged the glory. And now, when God looks upon us, it is, it is very bad. None is righteous. We are all rebels. The second thing that we should notice here is that our, our rebellion shows itself in every part of our lives. Our rebellion shows itself in every part of our lives. So the extent of sin's effects are devastating. Look again at the text. Their throats are an open grave, tongues used to deceive, lips are poisonous, mouths are filled with bitterness, feet are swift to hurt others. From head to toe, we are completely corrupted by the fall. Every aspect of our lives, our mind, our will, our emotions, our affections, our bodies have been ravished by the curse of sin. And now we are indicted as rebels against Him. There's no part of us that that escapes. We are totally depraved. Which which doesn't mean that all people are as bad as they could be. Or that, that... that sinful people never do good things. Jesus himself said, you are evil and you know how to give good gifts. But, but the point is that our entire being is naturally committed to rebellion against God rather than loving and serving him and we are unable to change our status. And that even our best deeds are still stained with pride because they're not done for him. So when we go out to do good things, you know, to make the world a better place, it's about making the world a better place or making our conscience feel better, not about the glory of God who made it all. From head to toe, we are completely rebellious against our God. The third thing that we should notice here is that the root cause of our rebellion is that we don't fear God. It's in verse 18. The root cause of our rebellion is that we don't fear God. So that the spring from which all rebellion flows is that people have a low view of God and a high view of themselves. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, so we, we govern our lives by our rules and set our hearts on other loves and dedicate ourselves to other pursuits. There's no dread of that day of of accountability. Sin seems small to us because God is small to us. The cross is, is offensive to us. The idea that we should repent of sin and trust in a bloody Savior who rose from a grave, like that's offensive to us because we don't understand how offensive our sin is to God. There's a a deadness and a coldness toward God that that either passively dismisses Him, oh, that, that works for you, that's fine, but not for me, or that actively protests Him. But either way, a lack of fearing God is, is the death of every heart. The fear of God is, is to rightly respect Him and rightly respond to Him. We rightly respect Him and we rightly respond to Him. And when this is lacking in our hearts, sin will flourish. 
When we think lightly of God, we will think lightly of sin. And this, this thinking lightly of, of, of God is what Paul mentioned down there in, in verse 23 when he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so the essence of sin isn't just doing things God says no to, which is sin. But it's, it's a deeper, deeper thing. Sin, at its, at its essence, is, is the trading of God for lesser goods. We, we love other things that may be good in and of themselves, but, but we love them in the way that God should be loved. We, we, we abide in other things rather than abiding in Him. So think about the way a lot of us are with our cell phones. Like we, we look at it, and we're on it all the time. We look for it for information and for comfort sometimes. We, oh, somebody liked me. Like whatever this kind of, like there's something we abide in there. It's this weird, weird, messed up kind of deal. But, but like that is how we are with the world, with everything. All the while forgetting that it's God Almighty who we should be abiding in, looking in, delighting in Him because He now delights in us because of Christ. Thinking about drawing attention from, our, you know, our great affection from Him. We, we, we trade him. We prefer idols instead of him. We exchange his glory for the passing pleasures of sin and therefore fall short of his, his perfection. And we have all rebelled in this way. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. So on that day, everybody's mouths will be shut Nobody will be saying, but God, what about me? But God, didn't I do this? Everybody will see. The evidence will be clear. Game over. We will be silenced before him. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God's law, whether it's, whether it's his, his word that we read in the Bible, or whether it's the inner law of the conscience that we heard of back in chapter 2, it never excuses us, but rather it condemns us. And it shuts our mouths before God. We hold up the commandments and say, hey, look how good I am. Like nobody does that if we have a right evaluation. Because it's a mirror and it shows us how far we have fallen from our love for the Lord. The law that we've broken does not excuse us, but it stands as a witness against us. And there is no doubt of the verdict verse 9 says we are charged as being under sin the evidence against us is endless there is no appeal process on that last day our mouths are shut and we are accountable to God and that is the summary of chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through 320 that God declares that we are rebels and are condemned in our sin before him and on that final day in his courtroom, God will be shown as holy and we will be shown as guilty without excuse before him. The next two words in the text were the end. There would be no hope. And sometimes I'll do that whenever I'm talking to somebody about the gospel and I'll lay out this, this, this uncomfortable part about how rebellious we are and then I'll close the book. And I'll say, well, what if that was the end of the story? Because 
if, if the next two words in the text were the end, there would be no reason for us to sing this morning. If the next two words in the text were the end, there'd be no reason for us to pray. If the next two words in the text were the end, there'd be nothing left to do but suck everything that we could out of this life because soon it will be over and we would never know any bit of joy or hope or love again. But the next two words are not the end. The next two words in verse 21 are But now, but now, then we were condemned, but now there is hope. But now God has acted, but now God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These these six verses right here are, are possibly the most succinct, and splendid account of what God has done for rebels in the whole Bible. This is, this is a great section of Scripture. So if you're thinking, what should I memorize in Romans? Like, I haven't memorized anything yet. This is a great place to start. 21 down through 26, that is good stuff. Put it in your heart. Put it in your mind. Think about it. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, focusing on point two, which is, that God declares us righteous and justifies us in our Savior. God declares us righteous and justifies us in our Savior. We'll see that verse 21 through 31. So, so the bad news is that God declares that we're rebels and we're condemned in our sin before Him. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous before Him and pardoned of all of our sins. Can you imagine on that last day when God says, but there are some who are not guilty. There are some who are not condemned. They're wicked. They're rebels. Yes, but they do not stand in their own righteousness. They stand in the righteousness of the Son. So to help us think about this, what we're going we're gonna to ask and answer two questions. What, what did God do for us rebels. And what does God want us to do in response? So what did God do for us rebels? And what does God want us to do in response? Alright. So what, what, did God, what did God do? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
So what has God done? God has manifested his righteousness. That which we do not have and could not obtain, God has now made it known. He he made it clear. He manifested it. He's revealed His righteousness in its full and undiluted glory for all to see. Where? In His Son. In, In Christ. This echoes back to what we heard in 116 where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's not the same word but it's the same exact idea. It's revealed to us. It's not something that we find. It's something that God peels back the, the, you know, the sky and shows, puts on display. Look, here it is. What you, what you do not have. And the good news is that God has freely given his righteousness. And he does it, verse 21, apart from the law. So it's, it's not through having the law or knowing the law or keeping the law that we become righteous. But it is apart from the law through faith in, in Jesus Christ. And, and we need to note here that, that the law and the prophets bear witness to this revelation of righteousness in Christ. So this is not some kind of like brand new thing, but like your whole Old Testament can be summed up with with the idea that somebody's coming. Something real bad happened in Genesis 3. We rebelled against our maker. The world is now filled with with evidences of God's wrath everywhere. We are fallen. We are broken. But God promises he's going to send somebody to come. And all the law and all the prophets says it's him, it's him, it's him. And then when he comes, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of your Old Testament moves up to that moment. And now He is revealed. The righteousness of God in the flesh. Jesus is the incarnation or in the flesh of God's righteousness. Right? So, so, so Jesus is the perfection of righteousness. He did what we could not do, would not do, and did not do. So when we read that, that section there in 3.10 through 18, He is the lone exception. So none is righteous, no, not one, but Jesus. The, the demons even said, you are the Holy One of God. Pilate said of Him, in Him I find no guilt. His own executioner said, this was an innocent man. He was righteous. We turned aside, but He always obeyed the Father. Our throat was an open grave, but he spoke words of life. We've used our tongues to deceive and spray poison, but 1 Peter 2 says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Our feet, they are swift to do evil and shed blood, but his feet, no, his feet were set toward the cross where he would shed his own blood for our sins so that we who never knew the path of peace might have peace in him. Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness. We had no fear of God before our eyes, but he feared the Father and loved the Father and cried out, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus is righteousness made visible. He is what we are not. He is the one who stands on that last day. And now, amazingly, God has made a way for us who are unrighteous to receive His righteousness. 
Not, not some righteousness of our own that we work up or earn or deserve or, or any of that kind of stuff, but rather we're going to get something that we didn't earn and that we didn't deserve. God is going to give a gift. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a, a gift. So, so just as we have all fallen short of the glory of God, now, because of what God has done, now there is hope for all who will believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, it says. So to the Jew who will forsake their own righteousness, they can have the righteousness of Christ. And for the Gentile who forsakes their idols, they can have the one who is the true image of God. He is the justification for the rich who feel like they need nothing and for the poor who think that they are unworthy of having anything. He is the justification for the black and the white and the Hispanic and the Asian and the Indian. He is, he is the one who, who died for, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the justification for the young who think that they have plenty of time and for the old who feel like they've waited too long. Jesus saves all who turn from their sin and trust in him. All were condemned. All fall short. But in Christ, all who will turn will be saved. They'll be rescued. They'll be ransomed. They'll be delivered from the condemnation of their own unrighteousness and clothed in the righteousness of the only one who has ever been truly righteous. So that, that means that Jesus is the hope for the most self-righteous of sinners and the most vile of sinners. No one is too hard. Nobody is too far gone. So whoever it is that you think that there's no way they'll ever believe the gospel, what you've got to know is that because of the idea that, that nobody's saved based on what they do, only saved through faith in what somebody else has done, Christ has done on our behalf, that means anybody can be saved if God would open their heart and awaken them to see Christ for who He is. Nobody's out of reach of the Almighty. That's what He can do. And there's a lot of people in this room who be like, uh-huh, that's my spouse. You're like, that's what we're, we point to one another and be like, that person, that person got saved? I got saved? That's one thing I love about, like, when I'm shy and I, like, we have the exact same story. It's almost the exact same thing. We were both just like, if, if y'all knew about us, what we know about us, y'all would not come to church here, okay? Like... <laughs> But if we knew about you, what you know about you, we wouldn't let you in. So it's all a fair deal, okay? The, the idea, though, is that God can save anybody. Anybody from anything. That's the power of the gospel. That's the beauty of justification by faith alone. It's not like there's somebody who's in a better position to get it. No, there's no advantage. It's a level playing field at the cross. Everybody's doomed. Praise God. It's good news. Because in Christ, in Christ he gives grace, free, benevolent, abundant, infinite grace. That's good news. And for those who do believe, verse 24, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The phrase, are justified, is, is a, a present passive tense. Which means it's something that God is, he's, he's done it and he's continuing to do it right now. We are justified. 
And he's, because Christ reigns the supreme um, high priest for us, we remain justified before him. And it's passive, which means it's something that God does for us. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's something that happens to us. God the Father justifies us through faith in Christ. So if, if we're trying to justify ourselves to stand before God on that last day, we would be scurrying about collecting all of our good deeds and pointing out where others fail so we make sure we're just enough in front of them. We'd be sweeping sins under the rug. We'd be painting them up so that nobody could see them. We'd be trying to make ourselves look good enough to stand before God Almighty. But the problem is that on that last day in Revelation chapter 20, it says, heaven and earth and everything are fled away. There's nothing. Naked before God. Nowhere to hide. We can't justify ourselves. We are rebels. And God doesn't wink at sin. He judges it. He judges sin. So our hope, our only hope, is that God might give us what we do not have and could not earn and do not deserve. Our only hope is that God will give us the perfect, unstained righteousness of of another which is exactly what our text says God has done for us. We are justified if we are in Christ. Not justifiers, not the ones who who justified ourselves, but we are justified. So what happens through faith in Christ is that God reckons or imputes to us his son's own righteousness so that we would be declared righteous. He gives us his son's righteousness so that we, who on that day, standing right there with nothing but evidence against us, rebel, condemned, now be declared righteous. Now, there's a really important distinction that we need to make when we talk about justification. Justification is not us being made righteous. We are not righteous. We are rebels. Rather, justification is being declared righteous. So now there's there's a practical sense, after we've been justified, in which we are, there's another big theological word for you, sanctified, set apart, to where we're made more practically righteous, to look like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is very true. But that's not what justification is. Justification is what happens. It's a legal act that God says, you, rebel, with all evidence against you, righteous. Righteous. So, for instance, if I, and this is, so this is the exact opposite of condemnation. We just saw what condemnation was, all of that. You're bad, and now God says you're bad. Justification is the exact opposite of that. You're bad, and now God says righteous. So, for instance, if I'm a thief, and I come into court, and the charge against me is upheld, I am condemned. When they declare that I'm condemned, that doesn't make me a thief. I'm already a thief. Condemnation is not making a wicked person wicked. Condemnation is declaring that a wicked person is wicked. It's stating their standing. So in the same way, justification is not making a person righteous. Justification is declaring a sinner to be righteous based on faith in Christ who took their unrighteousness and now clothes the rebel in his own righteousness. You're like, you're going over and over this. Yes, I am. Because we forget this. Every single one of us, every single day, tries and tries to justify ourselves. 
they asked Luther, they said, Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us every week? He says, because you forget it every week. <laughs> That's why we need to hear this again and again. So we, we are rebels. And, and by faith we hear of God's gift in Christ. And we humbly come and say, I'm not worthy. I'm, I don't have righteousness. I bring nothing to the deal here, Lord, but, but my bills and my guilt in all the debt that I have incurred for law-breaking. And all I ask for is mercy. And what God does is He freely gives the righteousness of Christ to us. He retracts the declaration of condemnation and lays it upon His Son. And now He declares us righteous. He cancels out our record of debt. So can right now, can you list every single reason why you are unworthy and no good and a complete failure? Can you do that? That's usually pretty easy for most of us. Can you come up with all those reasons? All the reasons why you've fallen short. Now hear this. Colossians 2.14 says, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Take your list, give it to Christ, and he nails it there. You're right, none of us are good enough. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve love. But Christ took the condemnation that we deserved upon himself. Nailed it there. That's why we sing songs that say, My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. That's why we sing songs like that. And that's why we rest. That's why assurance is rooted in Christ and not in our performance. That's why we don't sing songs like, you know, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I might be lost. I might be found. I guess we'll wait and see. Like, that's, that's, we don't sing those songs. Because it's not rooted. We don't believe that it's rooted in us. It's rooted in Him. It's in what He's done. He's paid it all. And all to Him we owe. That is our boast as God's people. And for those who trust in Christ, we're declared righteous through the free gift of grace in Christ. And I just want you to look at that word in verse 24, gift, or your translation may say free gift. We're, we're justified by His grace as a gift or a free gift. It's the same word in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The very end of the Bible, this invitation from heaven to repent and to believe. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears, Come, and let the one who is thirsty, Come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Without price. It's the same word there. Free gift. Come and receive. There is no price to pay because Jesus paid it all. And now God gives this, this grace-filled gift of His Son's righteousness to sinners who will by faith trust in Him. The sweetest words a holy God could ever say to a sinner is, I love you. And you've got to know that this morning, if you are in Christ, the Father says that. He says, I love you. I know you. I know you better than you know you. But in Christ, I love you love 
you. And nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not hell, not devils, not nothing. You're forgiven, cleansed, justified. And while that is indeed a wonderful act of mercy, that is, that's not, that's not even all that God did on, on the cross. Look again at verse 25. It says, God put him, Jesus, forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness. So the word propitiation. So if you came here hoping for a bunch of big theological words, you came on the right day, okay? So justification, sanctification, propitiation. But these are the words in which we rest our lives. The word propitiation is a word that refers to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. So the mercy seat, it's, it's the place in the temple or the tabernacle where God dealt with his people's sin. So if you read in Leviticus 16 later on, God gives instructions for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day when, when God would be reconciled with his people who had sinned against him through, through their offering of a blood sacrifice in faith, right? Through the high priest. Well, what would happen is that the people would bring the blood of a sacrifice and the high priest would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, putting off God's wrath and making atonement for the people, reconciling them in that sense for those who offered it in faith or received it in faith. It was offered by the, the high priest. So, so when Paul uses that same exact word here, he is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament mercy seat. So as in the Old Testament, where the mercy seat was the place where God took care of his people's sins, so now Christ has been publicly set forth. He has been manifested as the place where God now deals finally and forever with his people's sins. Jesus is the throne of grace. He's it. He's the place. He's the mercy seat where blood, his own blood, read Hebrews, the whole book's about that. His own blood is the sacrifice. He is the place where God now forgives sins, another theological word, expiation, and a place where he turns away his wrath, propitiation. His, his wrath is, is, is satisfied. So, so on the cross, when God pours out his wrath, it's satisfied in his son. That's what, that's what we see pictured, pictured here. And, and, and why did God do this? Why did he do this? Verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that means is that God fixes one of the great problems in the universe. The problem is this, that in the Old Testament, God gave mercy to people. God gave mercy to people. Now, you're like, that doesn't sound like such a bad deal. How is that a problem? Well, think about it. How, how could God, if he's, if he's good, God's really good and he's truly righteous. How could he pass over sins? How, how could he let a man like David 
who abused his power as king and stole a man's wife and committed adultery with her and then covered it up with murder, how could God say to him through Nathan the prophet, the Lord has put away your sin? How, how could God do that? What about his, what about his, his name? What about his reputation? I thought, you were, I thought you were a just God. What about your glory? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time without ceasing to be God? So this is the, this is the problem that no other religion answers. No other religion answers this. You either say that there's not really a God and it's all just energy, yin and yang, or in Islam you say, well... Allah will just be merciful, because that's what he'll do. Allah will be merciful. He can choose to be merciful to whoever he is. The problem is that that makes him a bad God. Because he excuses some sins. He doesn't execute justice. So then how does the God of the Bible display that he is indeed just and merciful at the same time? How can he do that? He does it at the cross that their God displays His righteousness by showing that He doesn't wink at sin, but rather He waited to pour out His justice on Jesus. It says He passed over sins formerly committed. That what, what that means is from the day of Adam in the garden, that God has, and yes, he, there was times where He executed justice. We had the flood. There were times He struck you know, Achan dead. Other times that he, he did execute justice, but not in its full sense. He passes over sin after sin after sin after sin. And it turns into this, this tidal wave of, of judgment that comes. And then, every sin that will ever happen, all the sins that you and I have yet to commit, they come from this side, and all of history's sins fall upon Christ on the cross. That there, God shows He is just. He judges sin. His glory is upheld. He is a good God. He does not wink at sin, but He will punish and pour out His wrath there. Which then He chooses. He didn't have to, but now He freely chooses to also be justifier. To extend mercy. To now justify those who will say, he got what I should have got. And now He gave me what He should have had. He took my sin and He gave me His righteousness. And now on that last day when we stand before God, all that evidence is true and I have nothing but Him. I'm with Him. And He said, and you said that in Him there's forgiveness. And I'm with Him. That is how someone's justified. That they are clothed in His righteousness. So, what was Jesus thinking about on the cross? John 10, 15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. So it is true that Jesus died for those who will trust in him. He, he, he did. He laid down his life for the sheep. That is true. But that song that says that on the cross he thought of me above all, that's just not true. Above all, he thought of something greater than that. John 12 27 through 28, Jesus says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, meaning the cross. Father, glorify your name. He says, I'm going to the cross because you need to be glorified. You need to be seen as righteous. You need to be seen as right. That 
is what was on Jesus' mind. And the outflow of that is that rebels are declared righteous. So, when a rebel trusts in Christ, God says, you have the righteousness of my son. Now, what what does he want us to do? Well, very simply, it should flow right out of this. He wants us to believe. Listen, Listen again to the text. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, this is verse 25, to be received by faith. What God calls us to do is to believe upon his son, Jesus. Bank your life on him. Rest it on nothing else but on him. And then in verse 27, he continues this idea. What becomes a boasting? Meaning if we trust in Christ and have faith in God's provision, what happens to our boasting about our own righteousness? Verse 27, it's excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, a law of faith. Verse 28, for we do not hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As we've seen, there's, there's only one way to be justified. And we're going to flesh this out more next week and whenever we get uh, to chapter 4 and look at Abraham, who is the example, uh, the illustration for us of how someone is, is justified. But this, and, and we're going we're to pick up the rest of that text next week, but, but what we need to see here is that, is that in chapter 1 all the way through 320, that we are condemned rebels before God, and that now God in his mercy has given his son Jesus to be the propitiation, that place where his wrath is satisfied in full, where now God, because he's displayed his righteousness, will extend mercy to sinners like you and like me, and that the response is for us to believe. There's nothing else we can do. All we can do is trust, say, I have nothing. Christ is everything. That's what God wants from us. So if, if you are here this morning and you, are, you don't consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you know, you've been hearing the word here this morning and thinking, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a Christian, I want you to pause for a moment and consider how merciful God has been to you. He has given you life and preserved you up to this very hour. He has kept your heart beating so that you could hear this word of grace. Like that's, that's not luck or chance or good dieting or any of that. It is, it is mercy from God. He sustained you. And because you, just like the rest of us and the rest of human history, will one day stand in that courtroom, you will either stand there and the books will indict you everything that you have ever done and the condemnation that rests upon you now because you have not believed, John 3 says, it will continue to rest upon you for all of eternity in judgment. But please, hear, Christ came for rebels like you and like me and like us. He doesn't come for healthy people. He comes for sick people. And that's who we are. We are in need of his mercy. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, is the day of salvation. Believe in him and you will be delivered. You'll be forgiven. And on that judgment day, you will stand in Christ. If you know that's you, I want to encourage you not to leave today without talking to somebody, either Shy or myself or any other the people here. Say, can you tell me more about that? But if you are a Christian, I want us to not be deceived into thinking that we, that we ever stop 
trusting? Did we ever stop believing? Did we ever stop resting in this justification? We, we, we never graduate from the need for grace. And in light of that, I want to I recommend just, just a, three, three things for you to, to take with you and to, to think about. And the, first, the first is this. That we should regularly reflect on the gospel of God's grace. We should regularly and prayerfully reflect on the gospel of God's grace. Remember it. Rehash it. We're going to do that in just a moment when we take the Lord's Supper. But, but pray that God would, would mesmerize you by it. That he would arrest your heart. That he would, he would awaken your affections. Listen, Delray Baptist Church, my greatest fear for us is that we would get used to God. We would get used to his grace. That we would grow cold to his mercy. That our affections would be dull towards him. What a, what a sad and terrifying place to be. Pray that God would not let that happen to you. Pray that, pray that he, would, he would make you weep over his mercy. Encourage one another with that. Pray for one another. If you want anything to pray for when you pray through the directory, pray that. God, warm his heart, warm her heart, warm our hearts to love you. To not grow cold by the gospel. How sad to eat a cold meal of grace. To let it just grow cold. There's a feast. Let's be a people who go and delight and reflect on it deeply. The second thing, so reflect regularly on the gospel of God's grace. The second is to apply the gospel of God's grace. Apply it. So like you would apply medicine to a wound, I want to encourage you to apply the gospel and the grace of Christ to the wounds of your soul and to one another's souls. We need this every single day to be reminded of the grace of God and the justification that we have in Christ. So ladies, remind yourself of justification. When every time you see a TV ad or every commercial or every pornographic thing that's out there that tells you that your worth is rooted in how you look and what you wear and how much you weigh and all those kinds of things, that is a lie. God says, no, in Christ you are loved in full. Not because of anything that you are or that you have done, but you are loved because I have set my affections upon you. So when you hear those lies and it tugs your heart, say, no, this is what's true. And you moms who, who wrestle at home trying to clean up all the stuff the kids do and changing diapers and trying to maybe homeschool or whatever it is that you're there and you just feel overwhelmed and burdened and left out and isolated and nobody cares about me. And you look at these other moms and, you know, they're pushing all the kids in the strollers and they're taking meals to orphans and widows and they're blogging about it. And you're like, how do they do all that stuff? And it's just, you're like, I can't do that. No. Don't look over there. Look up there. Look to Him. He is my righteousness. He says that I am beloved and I am delighted in Him and I am confirmed in Him. Go there a lot and help one another go there. And guys, you'll be tempted to believe that 
your worth is in how much money you make or how many people know your name or if you get that promotion or what kind of car you drive or how fat your portfolio is or what house you live in or you know what, what, what kind of letters are before your name or how, how good you're doing in the gym or whatever. We find all kinds of things, our power, our success. Like that's where we find our identity. And the Lord says, no, it's not there. Your righteousness is rooted only blood-bought Savior. It's in Him. Do not be swayed by those lies because you will be tempted to chase after things that are not of the Lord and exchange the glory of God for idols. Men, we must not be those kind of men. For those of us in this room who want to be married who are not, and we, we struggle with that, and it's a battle, and why not me, and is there something, if I was just this way, or if I'd have done this back then, listen, in Christ, you are accepted and beloved. God wastes no moments. He toys with no hearts. He is good. He is faithful. Rest in Him. There are so many other things, but we'll rest in that for now. The last one is this. Very briefly, declare the gospel of God's grace. So we want to we want to reflect on it regularly we want to apply it like medicine to our souls and to one another's souls helping each other remember the truths of the gospel but then if this is true we've got to tell somebody may God make us a people who see lost people like he does who realize that the people that we live next to and are in our families and we go to work with and we drive every single day these, there are countless people who right now Apart from Christ, on that day of judgment, we'll hear nothing but evidence against them and condemnation. And that God has placed us as his people in this city, in this time in history, to proclaim the gospel. That's why we're alive. It's one of the reasons we're alive. It's to make his name known. So pray that God would help you to love this him so much and be so enamored with his gospel and see the goodness of it so much that we can't keep it in. That we would be a people. Make his name known. Pray for opportunities. Plead for opportunities. And ask God to save many, that many, many more might know about this Savior. So, we are indeed rebels. And God condemns us in our sin unless, unless we believe in Christ. Then we are declared righteous. And we rest in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, a text like that is so humbling. There's so much there. And, but God, give us something for our souls from it. Lord, help us to remember your word and to delight in your word and to rest in what you say is true. God, make us a people who, who hate sin, who see it for what it is, and who love you and love grace and love the gospel. Father, make, make us a people who believe your word about justification. And God, for us who feel unworthy and hear nothing but condemnation, God, help us to cast our anxieties upon you, knowing that you care for us. And Lord, cast your truths upon our heart. Remind us of the gospel. And God, now as we approach uh, the table to partake of the Lord's Supper together, Lord, may you be magnified in our time. In the name of Christ.